Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Exodus. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Several of you have attended Mingo Academy's presentation of the Beauty and the Beast this week. Uh, they had their final, final presentation. Yeah, I heard it went awesome. Heard it was great. Over there, we had several from uh, our church family that went, several that played in it, and several that participated behind the scenes as well. In the story, the story of Beauty and the Beast is a story of redemption. It's a gospel story. If you look past uh, Disney's best attempts to get rid of the gospel, it's still there. And I think that's just the reality of the grand story of redemption being behind all the great stories that our culture and world can come up with. Uh, in the story of the Beauty and the Beast, uh, a man is, is cursed for decisions that he made when he was young, and he is, um, he is condemned to live a life, a beastly life, uh, by himself in a dark palace that's been ruined because of his own sinful choices. Uh, he has a little bit of time through this enchanted rose before the last petal of the rose falls off the stem, if he can find true love. Uh, he will be restored to the man that he was once was, that he was created to be. He will be the king, the prince uh, that everybody knew before. And so in the, in the part of the story, uh, as it progresses, uh, the beast, as he has come to be known as, meets Belle, the beauty. The beauty stumbles into the beast's castle, meets him for the first time, is repulsed by him at first, goes the opposite direction, running and fleeing for her life until she comes back in an effort to save her father and to find her father. And it's, uh, what happens during the story is um, true love finds the beast, uh, Belle looks past the rough, ugly exterior into the heart of the beast, softens his heart, uh, sees that he, the unlovable is lovable. The untamable is actually tameable. And they have this relationship, and they find true love, and from there, uh, the prince is magically transformed into, again, who he once was, who he was created to be. And it's a, it's a great story of redemption as you think about it uh, as applied to Scripture. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. Right? At the very beginning, God created man and everything was perfect. He created a right relationship between man and God. In Genesis chapter 3, the man makes a decision, the woman make a decision to go against the Lord's will to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and they are cursed forever. And they are banished to live in a land of darkness that is full of thorns and, and, thickle, and, and just briars. Uh, the evidence of sin is all around them in this cursed world. And it's not until God shows up, loves the unlovable, sacrifices, sheds blood at the very beginning in Genesis 3, at the end of the chapter. There, there's the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. And, and it's a beautiful story of redemption that takes us all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, when it's fulfilled through Christ and through the end of all things. The redemption story of Scripture is central to the Christian faith, which is to say the Christian faith is a story of redemption. It's not less than that. It's a little bit more than that, but it's at least that. It's not something different than a story of redemption. Christianity is, is not, in essence, a set of morals or rules that you must follow. 
Although it reveals a moral code, we have the Ten Commandments. We'll get to that in Exodus. Although it tells us how to live a moral and upright life that's distinct because of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us, Christianity cannot be reduced to morality. Neither is Christianity a a systematic theology. Theologians and, and philosophers try to take what they can and explain and create systems that are logical and oftentimes can enlighten and and bring truth to what we know about the scriptures. But reflection about the Christian story isn't the story itself. Reflections about theology isn't the redemptive story itself. It's secondary. Nor would we say that Christianity is the culture that is sometimes produced in a religious system. It's, It's not religion. The Christian faith is different from morality. It's different than philosophy. It's different than religion because from start to finish, Christianity is a story, a grand story, a redemptive story about God who created the world, about the only way that it would be redeemed and him entering into the story that he penned from the foundations of the world. It's a good story because it's a true story. Christianity is true. It is truth with a capital T because it leads us to the person of Jesus who is truth. When we come to the text in in Exodus chapter 13 and 14, you're going to see a a turning point in a larger redemptive story for the history of Israel. This is a grand redemptive story that's been told for generations in the past, and it informs our story and every other minor story after that. The story behind every other story is linked to this Exodus story. It's linked to the grand story of redemption, and it all comes together in the pages of Scripture. And so here's what I want to do. I want to just take these two chapters. We're not going to read through all of it. We're just going to highlight a few verses and some phrases and some different things as we go. And I want to talk about the redemptive story of Christ. I want to talk about redemption, what it means pieces, the parts that go into understanding biblical redemption. I want to emphasize our place in the redemptive story and talk about how our story was redeemed by Jesus because of what he's done for us on the cross. All right, no official outline this morning. These are just going to be principles, observations, and a lot of applications as we go. All right, when you get to the end of Exodus 12, if you take a look in your text, look at Exodus 12 verse 37. There's a major transition in the outline and the structure of Exodus when we get to the end of Exodus chapter 12. Up to this point in Exodus, Israel has been largely, mostly in Egypt. There's been a couple chapters, a couple paragraphs where we see Moses in Midian. He's with his father-in-law Jethro, and he's not in Egypt. But for the most part, the narrative setting of the Exodus story up until this point has almost been entirely in Egypt. Beginning in Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, all of that all of a sudden changes. Look at Exodus 12, 37. The people of Israel, it says they journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. The Israelites now are going to travel from Egypt to the base of Mount Sinai, a journey which will take them all the way from the end of Je- 
Exodus chapter 12 to the beginning of Exodus 19, verse 1. And one thing we've said about Exodus is that if you wanted to structure the entire book in one way, a lot of theologians, a lot of commentators structure the entire book according to the geography. Where is Israel in this story? At the beginning, Exodus 1 through 12, all takes place in Egypt. Chapters 13 through 19, that gets you to the base of Mount Sinai. Chapters 19 through verse 1, all the way until the end of chapter 40, you've got uh, the law coming to the Israelites, the covenant of the Mosaic law given to them at Sinai. Here's why I want to mention all of that. Redemption is a major theme in Exodus, probably the major theme in Exodus. Not only in Exodus, but really in all of Scripture. And for Israel, redemption was literally God bringing them out. It's a bringing them out of Egypt, okay? The root meaning of the word to redeem means to buy out or to purchase out or maybe purchase back even. You've probably heard that. And I've shown you this before, but I want to uh, use this as an illustration. This is a the famous statue that Michelangelo carved of marble of the statue of David, right? If you go to Florence, Italy today, uh, you can stop by an art gallery where you, you will see this statue. It stands 20 feet tall. It's enormous. It's, a, it's just perfect. It's a, you, you look at this and you kind of wonder how in the world and how much time did it take Michelangelo to do this. Over one shoulder is a, an ancient sling, right? In his hand that he holds on the other side, there's one smooth stone in the other hand. And art historians will say, this is David looking over to Goliath, completely naked, of course, which is like, okay, why is he naked? He's just the perfect specimen of a man, I guess. That's just how Michelangelo did it, right? This is a, it's a beautiful, stately statue, and and it's breathtaking when you go and you look at it. In that same gallery, you'll also see an exhibit called The Prisoners. It's a, there's a long hallway there. Um, I've probably mentioned this to you once before. It's been a while, though. There's a long hallway in that art gallery of other marble statues that Michelangelo had been working on. They're um, block marble, and they're little bits of uh, statues that he began to carve out of the marble, but he never finished. And they're technically, they're called the prisoners, all right? And apparently, Michelangelo had the ability to look at a block of marble, just a rectangular, rectangular block, and actually see the figures that he was going to carve be ever, before he ever started to hammer and chisel and carve them out. He believed that he was a tool in God's hands, and he was given a task. His task was to release the prisoners from these large, massive marble blocks being held captive in the block until Michelangelo literally brought them out of their captivity. In Exodus, God is at work bringing the people out of slavery. He's bringing the people out of Egypt. And that tells us at least this about redemption. Redemption is both an event and a process. Redemption is both an event and a process. It happens at one place at one time when the Israelites cross over the Red Sea, when they're delivered from Egypt, they are, past tense, redeemed. 
But now, as they are in the wilderness, journeying to Mount Sinai, they are in the process of being redeemed as well. It's a literally, it's a going out, or perhaps a little better stated, it's being brought out, a process of being brought out of captivity. And I want you to see a repeated phrase that occurs all the way through chapter 13. Look down at Exodus 13 and start here in uh, verse 3. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Verse 4, today in the month of Abib, you are going out. Skip down to verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Verse 9, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Skip down to verse 14. When a time came and your sons asked you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 16, it shall be a mark on your hand, frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And over and over again, you see this phrase, being brought out, being brought out, being brought out. Redemption is rooted in paradox. Redemption is rooted in paradox. In Exodus, Israel was liberated, past tense, but yet they're still leaving. Redemption has both happened and is happening. Redemption is a position for believers. It's also a process for believers. It's an event as well as ongoing. And there are major implications to what this means for us biblically and theologically. But I think the best thing that I can say about redemption is this in the New Testament is that Jesus is at the very same time, he is redemption and he is working redemption. He is redemption for us and he is working redemption in our hearts. We are both redeemed past tense and we are being redeemed in the present tense. Redemption is both a story and a journey. Redemption is the process of becoming who we already are in Christ. God is taking us to a destination in which we have already arrived. He is forming us into people that we already are based on our identity in Christ and based on what he's done for us on the cross. To carry the, uh, the Michelangelo image forward a little bit, the complete person is here. As a believer, you are redeemed, but the process must reveal all the redemption that God is doing on our hearts and on our lives. We are God's masterpiece, but we are still on the potter's wheel. We are still being formed and chiseled into who he has for us. God is the one who brings us out. God is the one who works the process from the beginning to the end. This is God's story on our life. And so let, let me just ask a question here. God brings us out of the slavery of sin. What does he bring us out to? What does he bring the Israelites out to? Where does he bring the Israelites out to? Where is he leading us in redemption? A principle of redemption that's, that's behind the text here is, is very clear. Uh, circumstances should play a very limited role in your redemptive story, no matter how desirable or how miserable. 
circumstances play a very limited role in God's story of redemption on your hearts and lives. When the text progresses from chapter 13 to 14, we're going from deliverance now, Red Sea crossing, to danger in the wilderness, to survival. Yes, God brought the Israelites out. Where did he bring them out? What did he bring them out to? He brought them out to a sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. He redeemed them. And yet they're looking at their captives in the back and they're looking at death in front. It begs the question, what should we expect in a redeemed life? What should we expect from God after have, have been redeemed by Christ's blood on the cross? Will a Christian story be better than a non-Christian story because we're redeemed? What does, what does better even mean for a Christian? And, and some of you are looking at me a little bit puzzled, most of the younger people. A lot of older people are looking at me like, okay, I think I know where he's going with this. Just because you're redeemed doesn't mean that your circumstances are always going to be great, happy, and glorious. It's not always Disneyland and dogs licking your face. <laughs> Sometimes when you're redeemed, life actually gets a lot harder. What did redemption mean for the Apostle Paul? It meant that he would spend the rest, rest of his life suffering for the gospel, bearing the brand marks of Jesus Christ. What does redemption mean for you and me? I wish, I wish I could stand up here and say, redemption means that after you lost a job, you're going to get a better job. That might not be true for you. I wish redemption means if you're, you're divorced, and a, a, a terrible breakup in your marriage, that you would get remarried or maybe go back to the person that divorced you. I, I don't know. I wish I could say that. But circumstances play a very little role in this. Jerry Sitzer is a book um, called A Grace Revealed. And I, I've read through this at least five times now. I really encourage you to, to pick it up. It's great. He's an awesome story to tell. And he says in this book, he says, the worst thing that could happen to us, sinful, selfish, and imperfect as we are, would be for us to live in a perfect world. The worst thing that could happen to us is for us to live in a perfect world. First of all, we'd mess it up somehow anyway, because we're sinners. Second of all, there's still a lot of work to be done in our hearts before we see Jesus face to face. Circumstances shouldn't make us happy. Only God can ultimately make us happy. Do you ever wonder how people redeemed people sometimes can face difficulties and go through life and it doesn't even seem to phase them? And other times, redeemed people can go through difficulties and circumstances in life that just take the air out of their lungs and take the ground out from beneath them? Why is it so hard to live these redeemed lives in Christ? Okay, Israel, you're brought out of Egypt. I've liberated you. You're going to about to cross over the Red Sea, and I'm going to defeat Pharaoh's army. Now what? Now what? Now we're going to go through 40 years of you learning how much of yourself needs to get out of the way and how much you absolutely desperately need Christ on a daily basis. Now you're going to find out how yourself and your selfish living and your self-centered existence for all of those years is still going to affect the way that you live. And I'm going to force you to turn to me where you have no other option but to look to Christ for deliverance, to look to God 
for safety, for security, and for significance. Now you're redeemed. Now life gets really hard in the wilderness. Um, before we talk about Exodus chapter 14, I want to mention just, just two things in Exodus chapter 13. Look down at verse uh, 17. Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. And I, I think that equipped for battle is a very interesting phrase at the end there. Uh, verse 17 is, is very understandable. The people of Israel were slaves. They were not soldiers. They were redeemed, but they were not ready to fight, especially against a stronger, more powerful army and nation than they were. Um, God knew that the people of Israel lacked faith. He knew that they were not ready for war. So he took them the long way around instead of the shortest or maybe the easiest way. You might say he took them the, on the road less traveled. He took them on the harder path. All right? When it comes to following God and redemption, sometimes the long road is the best road. When it comes to following God on the, our path to redemption, sometimes the long road is the best road. Sometimes the more difficult path is the path that develops our faith. There's a, a quote that goes something like this. It says, be thankful for closed doors and detours. They protect you from the path and the places that were not meant for you. In redemption, sometimes I think we, we face obstacles. We come into situations in life that are really difficult and dangerous for us. And sometimes that's exactly what God has for us so that we can trust him even deeper and even more. Second thing I want you to see, chapter 13 is the first mention of this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire by night. Uh, skip down to verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of cloud to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and it did not part, depart from the people." And it's clear that there's only, especially when you read this passage along with the other passages in the Pentateuch, there was only one pillar. There's not two separate pillars that existed at the same time or at different times. It's also clear that this wasn't a cloud that provided shade during the day when you read the text. Uh, the text details, a lot of people say this was, this was giving the Israelites shade as they journeyed through the wilderness and through the desert. I don't think that's the case. The pillar goes before the Israelites. You're going to see in chapter 14, when you get to the Red Sea, the pillar goes behind the Israelites. It's leading them. It's guiding them. It's taking them to the places that God wants them to go. In another text, Moses will go into the pillar of cloud from his perspective on the top of Mount Sinai. For other people at the base of Mount Sinai, it looks like a pillar of fire. It's the very same pillar, and it's the presence of of God. What was it was what was the function of the pillar? It allowed the Israelites to look at God and survive. It allowed the Israelites to look at the presence of God, to see his holiness and not be killed because they violated it and fell short of it. The pillar 
was not a substitute for God. It was not an image of God. It was God. It's a manifestation of the presence of God. And when you read verses 21 and verse 22, verse 22 seems redundant, does it not? What information are we getting in verse 22 that's different from verse 21? God did not depart from them. Everywhere they went, the Israelites knew every day, every hour, every minute that God's presence was with them. The pillar was a huge, massive visual reminder that God does not let his people alone. He does not leave them. He is always with them. He is always guiding them. It's a reminder of God's presence. Uh, skip down to verse chapter 14, and let's read uh, starting in verse 5. Exodus 14, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And so they made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him, about 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots, all his horsemen and his army, overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi-ha-hirot, in front of Baal-zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Israelites were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? You guys know what the pyramids were in Egypt? Massive graves, right? Massive graves. Is it because there are no graves? Again, sin is irrational. We have done in bringing us out to Egypt, verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, fear not. This is uh, one of Moses' finer moments in the book of Exodus. Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, for you have only to be silent or only to stand still, as some of your texts will say. The translations at the end of verse 13, for the Egyptians whom you see today, it's probably translated a little bit better as a causal phrase there. Uh, because you have seen the Egyptians today, you will never see them again. Here's what the writer is saying. Remember God who made the promises that he will deliver you from Egypt. Remember God who said to Moses, you will never see him again. You will never talk to him face to face again. He is fulfilling those promises now. The fact that you are seeing the Egyptian army on your doorstep is a fact that Jesus, that God is now Christ, through God the Father, is fulfilling the promise given to Moses and given to the people of Israel. The speech again by Moses might be one of his best up to this point in the entire book of Exodus. But listen, it's not the presence of Moses that makes the difference for the people of Israel. It's not the speech that draws our attention. It's what Moses concludes about the character of God that brings our, our sight and our attention to this text. Number one, God is a God 
who takes away fear and comforts the fearful. We learned so many things about God in this text. The first is that God is one who takes away fear. Fear not him uh, who can, how does, how does the verse go in the Gospels? Fear him who can throw body and soul in hell. That's how it ends there. We fear God and we fear God alone. Number two, God fights for his people. One of the major motifs in the themes throughout the book of Exodus is that God is king, but he is a warrior king. He fights the battles for the people. Number three, God's salvation is always by grace through faith. In the Old Testament, even though Israel had the law, they were not saved by the law. Salvation was the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. It's always by God's grace through faith, no matter what period of history that you are in throughout the scriptures. God's salvation, his deliverance is always by grace through faith. The Israelites don't say anything. They don't do anything. Their job is to stand there and to watch God work. Redemption and deliverance for the people of Israel meant this. God is going to fight this battle for you. All you have to do is trust him and watch the deliverance of the Lord. Skip down to uh, verse 19. Exodus 14, verse 19. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter here. Then the angel of the God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them, now stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Verse 22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. You guys might make a, a special mention of that phrase, underline that, a wall to them on their right and on their left. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. The Egyptians says, said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and their horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The second time you've seen that phrase. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, and Israel saw the great and power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. One principle of um, redemption through this text, pretty easy to see that faith is the victory. There's an old hymn, faith is the victory, faith is the victory over and over again. Faith is the victory here for the people of Israel, and faith is the victory for us. 
Not that our faith has power, not that our faith has a special ingredient to it, not that the emphasis is on us in any way. The emphasis in faith is always on the object of our faith. And the two phrases used to describe the wall of water in verses 22 and 28, 29, I think it is, uh, the wall was on their right hand and on their left, it appeared as a wall to them. Some interpreters try to explain this miracle using natural phenomena, natural things that might have occurred. They say that where the Israelites crossed the sea was really the Sea of Reeds. It probably wasn't that shallow. It dried up, and then when the Egyptian forces and their chariots came into the sea, the, those areas, it was just too wet for them to get through. And so God caused them to, uh, to just stall out in the wet ground. Of course, there's nothing in the text that suggests that this is true. Uh, everything in this, in this text suggests that there was a miraculous walls of water that were formed on both sides of the Egyptians or, or the Israelites. You're talking about 600,000 Israelites, the swath of land, and how wide that was for them to cross through the sea had to be just impressive. It certainly was for Charlton Heston as we watched it in Ten Commandments. But if I, had to, if I had to think about this, and I often do when I read this story, when you read a Hebrew narrative, you can read it somewhat imaginatively. The text beckons you to read this as if you were there watching it, as if you were participating in it and crossing through the Red Sea. It's drawing our attention to the details, even the minor details of what people were seeing on their right and their left as they walked through and if I had to imagine what this was like for the Israelites when they walked through, I suspect that there was two types of people that went through the Red Sea that day. I suspect that there was people like me who believe in Jesus, love him to the ninth degree, and just walk through, see you boys later. I'm on the other side. Adios, Egyptians, right? These are the tough guys walking through. Nothing phases them, right? I suspect that there was also some Israelites who walked through pretty carefully with a lot of trepidation. I suspect some of them were just like, okay, guys, let's get through here really quick. Is this, how long is this wall going to stay up for us? I suspect there was people that walked through who had great, massive, large amounts of strong, strong faith in God and a strong trust in his promises. I suspect there was also people who had very little faith in God that walked through. And guess what? They were delivered to. Because the issue with salvation, the issue with redemption, isn't us. The strength of our faith isn't being emphasized in this passage. It's not the people that really believed or strongly believed or believed to the nth degree that crossed over. It's everybody who crossed over. It's the people who had a strong faith. It's also the people who had a weak faith. It doesn't matter if our faith is strong or our faith is weak, especially when it comes to salvation of the Lord. The smallest mustard seed grain of faith is good for the salvation of the Lord because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on the object of our faith. And the object of our faith right here at the Red Sea Crossing is the character and the promises of God. The object of our faith when it comes to Jesus in the New Testament, is Jesus who died on a cross for our sins. Some of us believe strongly and God holds us, and some of us believe with a little faith and God still holds us because the object is what matters. 
when it comes to faith. The last thing I want to say about this passage, we just haven't had a ton of time to look into the details, but this is it. God is the author of our story, our redemptive story, from beginning to end. God has penned a story of redemption for us, for believers. He started it, he finishes it, and he takes us all the way through it. For some of us, our story of redemption is going to look differently than others. Some of us have a story of redemption that is filled with suffering and turmoil. And we don't know why we suffer more or greater than other people. We don't know why we experience evil in a fallen world in ways that are harder than other people. Some of us have a redemptive story that's written on our lives that's actually it's quite calm and peaceful. Some of us don't face trials and uh, the suffering that other people will face. But regardless of where you find yourself in this redemptive story, God is the author from beginning to end. And as the author, he does something different than any other author has ever done in the history of the world. We, we, we don't know why people suffer. We don't know why God allows certain things to happen in this world that simply don't seem to make sense. But here's what we do know. God cared about us enough. He cared about those suffering enough to come down to the earth in a form of man and take suffering upon himself that was more suffering and unimaginable than any other suffering that you could ever face in life. When God saw our suffering, he took on suffering himself in the person of Jesus and took on the wrath of God. He took the wrath of the Father upon himself and suffered it. You can't say that God is aloof. You can't say that God doesn't care. You have to say at the very least, he cared enough to send his son to be fully engulfed in suffering and take on the wrath of God. You can also say that his redemptive story is your redemptive story. We know the end from the beginning. And whatever you are going through in life, whatever he has put in front of you, it's going to come to an end. And everything, every tear uh, will be dried Every person will be healed. He will bring our redemptive story to completion at the second coming of Christ. Everything ultimately is leading up to that point. Our little microcosm of redemptive stories that we experience are just a shadow and a blip compared to the macro redemptive story that God has written on all of history. And everything that we experience is just part of the massive redemptive story that he has written for all of mankind and all of history. And all of it is leading to the person of Jesus. Everything is leading to Christ. As you are walking through this life, experiencing suffering, as you're experiencing the redemptive hand of God, know this, just as the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire was with the Israelites wherever they went, God is always with you. He has promised never to leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, whatever you're going through, you can trust him. You can trust that he is going to be with you no matter what. And if it so happens that your trial and your suffering leads to your death, God is with you even in death. He is always with you. He is with you in life. He is with you in death. There's never a time that you are apart from God. The presence of God is perpetually with the people of God in the kingdom of God. And we can take his presence with us no matter what we're going through. But he has penned a story. We don't know the next chapter in our life. 
We know the previous chapters. We know what we're going through right now. You don't even know if what, how what you're going through today is going to end today or end tomorrow or next week. It might not end. You have no guarantee that you're going to live till tomorrow or till the end of next week. But he's given us today. And today is a gift. And he's asked his redeemed imagers to live trusting him day by day that no matter what circumstances you're going through, whether they be easy circumstances or difficult, trying circumstances. He has written this redemptive story on your life for a purpose. And he will bring you into completion at the end of all things when we will be like Jesus forever. The redemptive story of Israel is filled with a lot of pain, a lot of trials, and a lot of suffering. As we look at our lives, I don't think we should expect anything less than that. But I think where Israel failed was where they failed to see the presence of God with them and the gift that went along with them along the way. If we can learn from their failures, it'll be better for us as we walk out this redemptive story that God has penned on all of our lives. Let's, uh, let's pray as we finish up here. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, <clears throat> just the way that you've worked in the past. Thank you for these great verses in Exodus 14. Thank you for the promise that you will fight for us. Our responsibility is to simply be still, to stand and watch your redemptive purposes, how you're working them in our lives. I thank you that you fight our battles for us. I thank you that you have delivered us. I thank you for grace. I thank you for the ability. Thank you for faith uh, to trust you, Lord, more and more every day. God is... Uh, as we see Israel here going through um, just this miraculous event of redemption in new life and new creation and being freed from slavery, those of us who are believers have experienced that in Christ. We too have been redeemed. But there's a lot of the old self that's still captured in our hearts and in our minds. There's still a lot of work to do before we become face-to-face -face with Jesus, our Savior, who fought the greatest battle that could ever be fought for us, who defeated sin and death on Calvary's cross by dying to overcome sin and death and to live a victorious life resurrected from the grave. God, I pray that um, our redemptive stories would be saturated, point to, filled with, consumed with, delighted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we see redemption unfold in Exodus, help us to look to our own lives and see Jesus as our redemption. As we see the Israelites going through the wilderness and compare it to our own life, that we would see Jesus as the way and, and the truth and the life, that the way to the Father is through him and that life through the Father is in Christ. Lord, help us to find our satisfaction, our joy, our fulfillment in Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. God, and it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.